So good morning, everyone. I think it's on. Yeah, there we go. Thank you. Good morning. So if you don't know my name, my name is Brian Cobley. I'm the family ministry director here. And guys, we have a fun one this morning, I just want to say. It seems like I get the fun ones. Um, and I'll show you. We're going to start it off fun by I want to ask you a question. And I need complete honesty with this question, all right? Like, really, this is, this is the time to be humble. This is the time to be open. Um, but here's a question. Who here, and I want to I show of hands, who here has a tendency of being a little too controlling? All right. <laughs> That's good. Keep them up. I'm going to say your name so the people online know who you are. Just kidding. So that was good. I'm proud of you. That was great. A lot of honest people in here. I think this one uh, actually might have a little bit more people raising their hand. Who here, and again, raise your hand, has a friend, family member, spouse, mother-in-law that has a tendency to be a little too controlling? Raise your hand. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> there we go. Now, last question. Uh, who here has that person here with them? Raise your hands. I'm just kidding. Don't do that. Come on. <laughs> Man, kind of in relationships today. <laughs> What'd you say, Eli? <laughs> so the truth is, I think we all know people who have who have been a little controlling, and you know, sometimes uh, I heard it this morning, and it, this is a good reminder. Um, sometimes it does come out of love. I feel like we love people so much that uh, we care so much about them, want to protect them, that it can be somewhat a little too controlling. But there are there is the negative side of controlling. And I think we all know people like this, where like a controlling behavior has a person who expects or requires others to cater to their standards and their needs. And this is usually at the expense of others. And this behavior, it can be unhealthy, it can be self-serving, and it can damage the trust between the people. And without realizing, we could be doing this with the relationships that we have with the people around us. And we could be actually doing this with others' relationship with God, kind of controlling what we think the requirements or standards are for them to be in relationship with God. And I want to bring up a word for you. This, this, I don't know, these last three weeks, uh, as we continue to mark, there's been uh, a term that Ryan brought up in a sermon of tunnel vision. Allison last week brought up the term blind spots in our life. Today's word, it's a good one, is gatekeeping. If you don't know what gatekeeping is, gatekeeping means the act of controlling access to or limiting participation in a particular group, community, or culture. Gatekeeping. Now, this is often used for, like, media outlets, and the media gets to choose what the, the audience gets to listen to, and they filter through, and they only get to say what they want. But the last few years, this has been used more and more for people. And we actually seen this trait with the Pharisees last week um, as Allison was preaching. We saw how the Pharisees were gatekeeping on how people are to worship God and who can worship God. And so this morning we are going to continue the gospel series in Mark that we call the life and way of Jesus. And we're continuing where Allison left off when she preached about how the Pharisees lived more about their traditions, the traditions of man, instead of the teachings of God. And to make matters worse... They were also doing this to God's people, that they were controlling. They were gatekeeping on how to worship, who can worship, making insiders and outsiders. Now, obviously, we know this is bad. And we give a bad rap towards the, the Pharisees. You know, we, 
we realize the issues that they do. We read scripture and we see how Jesus called it out time and time again. But I want us to realize that we, we may be more like them than we realize. That in our day-to-day, we tend to put parameters on people or, or requirements that if people aren't living up to, we kind of kick them out. This can happen at work. This can happen, honestly, within our, our marriages, our relationships, just friends in general. And I do want to, I want to give some examples here of a good question of gatekeeping. I think uh, one of the big questions out there is, how do you put your toilet paper on the roll? <laughs> the properly. <laughs> the properly. <laughs> Another one is, you know, how do you use your toilet paper? Are you a folder? Are you an animal? And just ball it up. How do you put your socks and shoes on? Are you sock, shoe, sock, shoe? Are you sock, sock, shoe, shoe? Or you're like my wife who doesn't wear socks at all? <laughs> like we, we have these questions. The big one, again, it feels like this one will always be Android or iPhone. I don't want to give you give your answer. We'll split the church if, <laughs> on, on that issue. <laughs> but there is, there, there, is, there is gatekeeping that we do, sometimes funny. Sometimes it can become very heated debates. Um, heard a good one this morning of who controls music. <laughs> and so there, there, there are funny ones. But I do believe within Christianity that we find ourselves gatekeeping people who could be here, people who can worship God, or what we believe people who are true Christians are worshiped the correct way. And it's based upon our opinions, our preferences. We gatekeep people's relationship with Jesus. And based upon that, there's, there's areas, three areas, I believe, where we start gatekeeping when we disagree with somebody or disagree with what they're doing, disagree who they are. The first one we gatekeep is just being welcoming. We gatekeep being welcoming. We don't want to agree with the holy kiss, not literally. We decide to not be wholesome or nice. We push them away. Um, we don't want to invite them. We tend to band people together against this people or people group. And we make them feel like they're the worst people in the world. And that they're unlovable by even Jesus. So we gatekeep being welcoming. The next thing we gatekeep is, is grace. You know, that same grace that we've encountered, that we've experienced with Jesus, we're withholding that from people. Because we think they're not good enough. We feel like they need to change. They need to stop sinning to, to be welcome into the fold. We, we gatekeep grace. And here's the worst one. We gatekeep the gospel when this happens. When we do all of this, we determine who gets to hear this message and experience the love of Christ. Again, that we experience. We determine who is in the kingdom and who is out. We gatekeep their faith. And we gatekeep the sanctification process that Jesus could be doing in the lives of the people around us. I believe this is happening, and I believe this might be happening in areas that we don't even fully realize, because I believe the Pharisees didn't truly know that they were doing this. But this is something that we saw last week that Jesus exposed again and again. Here's what Jesus said uh, in in, uh, quoting Isaiah. Jesus said, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, the, the, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. And Jesus speaks to them and says, you leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. Jesus calling out the Pharisees. 
And then we saw that he exposed how they were treating others based upon what they ate. And Jesus said, hear me, all of you, and understand that there is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. Again, speaking about the, the heart of the Pharisees. So these Pharisees, they were in control. They were gatekeeping what they believed who was on the inside and who was on the outside. Based upon their traditions, they could feel like how they were, that they can judge God's people and they can judge who was, on, who was in and who was out. And this morning, we're actually going to see how it was flipped on them. And we are going to see who truly is on the inside. So if you guys have your Bibles, open them up to Mark chapter 7. We're starting in verse 24, and we're going to read all the way to verse 30. Um, and this is the Word of God. I think we've done this a few times. Let's stand up if you're able to, to hear the, the Word of God and how amazing Jesus is. But also be prepared how confusing Jesus can be sometimes. So here we go. It says, from there he arose and away from the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know yet he could not, yet, oh, he didn't want anybody to know, yet he could not be hidden. But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, For this statement you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. You guys can sit. So we are, we are picking up right after this conversation with the Pharisees in regard to them honoring tradition and, and, and not really listening to God and, and judging people um, and Jesus calling out their heart and after he explains what is clean and unclean. So Jesus leaves and he goes to this region, this region of Tyre and Sidon, which is actually a big deal contextually speaking. See, this would have actually raised eyebrows to the original listeners because where Jesus is at is considered enemy territory. So as Jesus talked with the Pharisees about like who's on the in, who's on the out, and what's in their heart, Jesus leaves and goes to a region that the gatekeepers would have completely stated, all these people are out. So this is where Jesus goes. So this would have, this would have raised eyebrows because this Gentile region has a long history of antagonism toward Israel. And if you, uh, in the Old Testament, when you read it, this was the home of Jezebel, who in Elijah's day almost destroyed the northern kingdom with pagan prophets and pagan worship. So this is what the listeners would have been thinking about and hearing, that Jesus is talking about clean and unclean, who's in, who's out, and now he is going to a completely enemy territory, Gentile region. And it wasn't just this region that would have caused tension with the audience. We see that Jesus enters a house. Now the question here is, well, whose house? Did Jesus enter? Was this a Jewish house, which would be okay, or is this a Gentile house? Now, scholars kind of lean towards one way, and um, more like the name that we keep bringing up in this series is uh, Gombus's commentary. And Gombus states that there were likely some Jews living in this area, but because Mark leaves the identity out, it is most likely a Gentile's house. 
So, again, the listeners kind of get a little, little tension here. But we learn that Jesus enters his home. And we learn that he wants to be left alone, which is common. We see this in Jesus' ministry where he wants to go up on a mountain and pray um, or just spend time just with his father. We saw where he woke up early in the morning wanting to pray, and Peter and a whole crowd like hunted him down and tried to find him. So this is a moment where Jesus wants to be left alone in his state. And it doesn't explain why. It could be he kind of got frustrated with the Pharisees and the interaction before that he kind of just wanted to, to leave, just be left alone. I'm done with them. They might be searching for me. I want to get out. It could be that maybe he wanted to spend some intentional time to, to teach the disciples. However, different from Matthew's account of this, Mark doesn't mention the disciples at all, so that might not be the reason. And it could just be simply that Jesus wanted to rest. This was a good area for him to rest. But... Like with Jesus's, what was common with Jesus's ministry, he could not be hidden for long. And Jesus himself stated this in Mark when he said, For nothing is hidden except to be made manifest, nor is anything secret except to come to light. So even Jesus should have expected that he was going to be interrupted. But he does. And we encounter this woman who has heard of Jesus, that heard that Jesus was near and went to him. And this woman was desperate. And we find out why. Mark tells us that this woman had a daughter with an unclean spirit, which means that she had a daughter who was demon-possessed, which would have caused tension again, being in this area, and to the gatekeepers who are determining who's in and who out. But what's amazing and what we can look at is what Jesus is doing, who Jesus is, his ministry, his miracles, is spreading so far that this woman has heard of this prophet Jesus who's performing miracles. And this brings hope. The good news is spreading so far that it brings this desperate woman to him on hope that Jesus can be the answer for his daughter. And so she does what so many others before her have done. She falls at the feet of Jesus. Falls at the feet of Jesus. We see this time and time again. We saw this in Mark when Jesus healed a man with leprosy. We read it with Jairus, who desperately needed healing for his daughter. And we saw this with a woman who needed healing from a bleeding that she had for years. And all she needed to do was touch his garment, and she would be healed from this ailment. All these people have fallen at the feet of Jesus, just surrendering themselves, humbling themselves to Jesus. John Cassian says this, to cling always to God and to things of God, this must be our major effort. This must be the road that the heart follows unswervingly. Any diversion, however impressive, must be regarded as secondary, low-grade, and certainly dangerous. So this woman clinging, falling to the feet of Jesus in desperation, but this newfound hope that what she needs is right in front of her. Now, we do get some information from Mark. Again, for the gatekeepers, not great information. We find out that she is a, a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth. And my favorite, guys, I've never heard this term before, but I'm going to use it for the rest of my life. Edwards in his commentary states about this verse, verse 26. He says, verse 26 reads like a crescendo of demerit. Very poetic. Crescendo of demerit. He says, she is a woman, not only a woman, a Greek Gentile woman, but not only that. She is from the infamous pagan area of Syrophoenicia, and not only that. We also find out that her daughter is demon-possessed. 
So to the Pharisees of the time, she is not only outside, she is way outside the fold of God. This woman stands for everything that the Pharisees are against, everything they're trying to keep people from with their traditions that they have established. So this woman, very far according to the people of God. But now at the feet of Jesus, this woman desperate for a healing with this newfound hope goes to Jesus, asks for this healing. Jesus does not give the answer that she was hoping for. In fact, she might have gotten insulted by Jesus, which can cause some tension. Jesus said to her, let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. So Jesus addressing her in a parable, parabolic form. There's two things I want to point out here about Jesus' response to her. First, Jesus tells her, no right now. The answer is no, but it's not no forever. It's no right now. The children are to eat first. So he doesn't say no, just not yet. Second, he says it's not right for him to take the bread of the children and give it to the dogs. So the question that comes up is, is Jesus calling this woman a dog? The answer is yes. He is calling her a dog. Well, let's address the first part of this parable. Jesus said, let the children be fed first. Now, if you don't know who the children are, the Jews in this time are considered the children of God. We read this in Exodus and Deuteronomy and Isaiah. See, they differed from other nations because of their inclusion with the covenant of Abraham and because they possessed the Torah. So what Jesus is doing here is, is, is simply establishing a priority of his mission in the present context. He's telling, he's implying what his messianic priority is. His ministry will go to the Gentiles, but not yet. The children are first. The Israel's first. The Jewish people are first. We read this uh, in Isaiah. It says, the servant of the Lord must first restore the tribes of Jacob and then be a light to the nations. So what Jesus is doing with this woman is stating this, the, the priority level. It's like, hey, I know you want this healing, but the children must eat first, and it's not right to give the food of the children to the dogs. So now, let's address the next one. Is Jesus calling her a dog? Again, yes. So some context about this word dog this was an insult for the Gentile nations. They would, they, the Jewish people would call the Gentile people ravenous, savage dogs, not good to be in the home. They're wild, they're beasts, they're unruly. It's, this, this term was used for pagan worshipers. And Jesus is using this term for this woman. And uh, the readers would have been like, amen, brother. That is... Great word for her, especially the area that she comes from. This woman is a dog. And going back to Gomez's commentary, he says that this was an ethnic slur, which is shocking but strategic when the context and narrative purpose of Mark is taken into account. So Jesus, it seems like, a demis- like, like he's trying to dis- dismiss her and trying to like get her away. Because again, we read that he wanted to be left alone, so like... Is this what happens when Jesus gets a little too irritated that he starts insulting people? Uh, Not my Jesus, is what some of you want to say. (laughs) But he does call her a dog. And others, there's some debates 
of did Jesus actually insult her? And some of you might have heard some like the arguments of why this wasn't an insult, but scholars completely disagree with what Jesus was saying here. Now, the, the, the kind thought that you might have heard before is this word dog used in the Greek is not the same term that we read in the New Testament where it is talking about the wild animals. The thought process is this term is used as a house pet. Like this, this is more of a, a loving dog. But as some commentaries will tell you, being called a dog in general is just not good. <laughs> Even if you call somebody a house pet, it's not usually enduring. Except for what I've been hearing lately is Travis Kelsey is like a, uh, a golden retriever. Uh, so some of you say that, so maybe, maybe it flipped uh, in the weeks leading up to this sermon. But Jesus calls her a dog. And so regardless of our thought, that happens. But what we see with this woman's response is Jesus is calling her a dog in a parable form. And she perceives it. She understands what Jesus is saying. And she was not insulted by it whatsoever, being called a dog. She wasn't insulted and actually kind of used his terms, what he's saying against him. Maybe not against him, but maybe sharing in what he is saying. She says, yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. So the response of this woman is both humbling and powerful. She doesn't argue with them. She doesn't get upset. She doesn't try and cancel Jesus. She, she shares with it. She understands what he's saying. And she, and she understands the priority level of where she stands in this. And she calls him Lord, which, fun fact here, she is the first person in the Gospel of Mark to call him Lord, and I believe the only person in the Gospel of Mark to call Jesus Lord. But she said, yes, Lord. I understand your, your mission. I'm not asking for you to give me the bread that is prepared for the children. All I'm asking, like dogs, I'm just hoping for a little crumb that's going to fall at the feet that I could eat. So this is the same kind of faith of the woman. It's like, I just need to touch his garment. I don't need all. I just need a little. And that's this woman's faith is I understand your priority to the Jewish people. I get it. I understand what you're saying. I just want a crumb. You can call me a dog. Then, give, then feed me like a dog, because that's all I need of you to get the hope or get what I need here. But see, by her response, she presents herself most humbly before Jesus. This is humble. Again, she's at the feet. She's not, a, she's not offended by Jesus, but she adopts a posture of humility that Jesus presented in this parable and asking for just a few table scraps. And church, what we see here, with her response, with her humility, what we're about to see is this woman is actually an insider. Now, I'm going to explain why I think about that. But again, I just want to remind you, to the Pharisees and to the gatekeepers, she's outside. But to Jesus, we see that she's inside. Now, how do we know that? It's because of what Jesus said back in Mark chapter 4. Jesus said, to you... And this is talking about after the, him giving the parable of the sower. And people are confused by the parable. He said to them, To you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. But for those outside, everything is in parables. So that they may, may indeed see, but not perceive. And may indeed hear, but not understand. Lest they should turn and be forgiven. 
So we see that this woman both sees and perceives. She is an insider. And through this, we see that Jesus healed her. In verse 29, he said to her, For this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. What I love about this um, is I think Jesus is one of the first people to work remotely. Because <laughs> in that moment, he just completely heals the daughter. Didn't have to go to her. Just like, yeah, go. Because of your faith, go. She is, she is healed. But she is an insider. See, this woman had hope. But I think she also shared this hope with Jesus. Because up to this point, if you guys have been following us in up to all these seven chapters of Mark or just reading on your own, we see a whole bunch of people who don't understand Jesus. We see a whole bunch of people who don't perceive him. Who should perceive him? We see it with the Pharisees. We see it with the scribes. If you guys remember, his own family didn't even perceive him. They actually tried to tie him up because they thought he was out of his mind. People have been calling him demon-possessed. And a couple weeks ago, we even learned that Jesus, uh, when he walked on water, he was trying to reveal his glory, him being the Messiah, to the 12. And they just couldn't see it when it was right in front of them. So all, a bunch of these people are not perceiving who he is. But what the world would consider as an outsider gets it is on the inside. I think as Jesus was giving this parable, maybe testing what he said in the parable of the sower to see where she was at, she got it. And I bet this was just that one little bit of hope that Jesus needed to be like, you know what, this is working. This is working. The ministry is working. This woman perceives it when everything else would have, everyone else would have considered her an outsider. The Pharisees, whose standards of clean and unclean, this woman would be the furthest from the kingdom of God. She's unclean. She's a woman. She's a Gentile. She's from enemy territory. And she has a demon-possessed daughter, which brings up the question, how did that even happen to this woman's daughter? Like, what was there some sort of pagan worship leading up to this? But she rushes to Jesus, puts herself in a posture of worship, humbling herself before Jesus, not getting upset by what he called her, playing along or not, being called a dog again, unless you're Travis Kelsey, not that great. She has given full control of Jesus and humbled herself to whatever Jesus was willing to give. This woman demonstrates a heart of somebody who is giving it all to Jesus, while there's a whole bunch of gatekeepers trying to keep her out. Paul, if you guys don't know this, Paul was a Pharisee. And he was a good Pharisee. Paul living up to the standards and the traditions of men like a Pharisee would. Paul said this in his letter to the Philippians. He says, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews as to the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted it as a loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ and be found in him. Not having righteousness of my own that comes from the law, 
but that which comes through faith in Christ Jesus, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. So Paul, a Pharisee, after his encounter with Christ, realized what he was doing and now where he should be. But here's a a funny, interesting event that happens later in Paul's ministry and one of the disciples. If you guys remember Peter, um, we'll read his name, it's Cephas, but Peter, the, the disciple, in Acts, received a wonderful vision from God. If you guys encountered this vision, what Peter received was a vision that God, Jesus was telling him that there is nobody considered unclean, that all of people can come to Jesus, all people are clean, all people have the ability to encounter Jesus. And at this time, which was, there was a lot of segregation, a lot of racism, like a Jewish person would never enter the house of a Gentile. Peter was breaking those barriers, those boundaries, because of this this vision he received from Jesus. But what we see from Paul later is Peter lost his way in this. And Paul says this in um, Galatians 2. He says, but when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party, which is the Jewish party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas, which is Peter, before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like the Jews? See, Paul learned. Paul learned to stop gatekeeping and stop trying to control people's relationship with Jesus. And he is seeing one of the 12 even fail at this. After receiving such a great vision from God that we today need to realize that we might be doing this as well. If this happened with Peter, this can happen with us. That we could be gatekeeping people's relationship with Jesus. And honestly, could be keeping a woman like this away. We could be pushing a woman like this away from being in this sanctuary or being in any sanctuary across the world based upon how we treat them, how we look at them, and what we say about them. So my question for us this morning is who in your life is gatekeeping? But I don't want you to point fingers like, oh, that that person for sure is a gatekeeper. This question is this. Who in your life is gatekeeping? You or are you allowing Jesus to gatekeep? Are you allowing Jesus to be the gatekeeper? Because the truth is, Jesus is the gatekeeper. And only Jesus has that role in anyone's life. That is Jesus' role. And that is actually something that Jesus himself even stated. If you read John 10, 7 through 9, Jesus says this. Very truly I tell you. I am the gate for the sheep. I am the gate for the sheep. All who have come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep have not listened to them. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. They will come in, go out, and find pasture. Jesus is the gate, the gate for the people to come to him to have that pasture. And if we, if we are trying to step into that role, we are thieves and robbers. But not only that, we are pushing people away. Jesus says earlier in that, in that 
uh, parable, he says, a stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. So church, we're not gatekeepers. When we shouldn't be gatekeepers. For some reason, we put it, we gave it our job and our responsibility to tell Jesus who is in the sanctification process and who's not while we're getting in the way of what Jesus might be doing in someone's life. Robert Mulholland Jr. in his book says this, the the relinquishment of control of our relationship with God to God is the essence, I think, of moving out of our privatized, individualized spirituality into corporate worship. When we do release control of our relationship with God to God, we discover that God responds. When we are in control of our relationship with God, when we try to maintain a privatized spirituality, we have to maintain a defensive posture towards others. But when we allow Jesus to be the gate, we, we no longer have to be defensive towards other people and can do the, thing, the three things that we shouldn't be gatekeeping in the first place. We can be welcoming. We can welcome them. We can welcome people with the holy kiss. We can accept them into the sanctuary. We can accept them into our lives. And then we can show grace instead of gatekeeping, that same grace that we've experienced from our Savior, from Jesus. We can now offer it to those who are seeking it. Maybe they don't even realize that they're seeking it. And through that, we can just present the gospel to all as Jesus' gospel was spreading to all when we see it in the life of this woman. Church, we don't have a say who's in and who's out. And we shouldn't have a say who's in and who's out. And I think we as a church, I think we've gotten in the way too much. It could be the reason why there's so many denominations of just gatekeeping after gatekeeping. But we don't need to do that. We don't need to have a say in who's sanctified. We just need to witness it. And we can just be in the pasture with everyone else that Jesus has opened that gate for. So church, let's not control. Let's not gatekeep. Let's just present the gospel to everyone who's ready to hear it. Are you with me? Let's pray. Jesus, truly I know all of us love you. And this gatekeeping, this control can be because of that, how much we love you. And we want to see your word prevail, your truth prevail. But Jesus, I also can see how it can get in the way and how we're pushing people, how we've kind of taken your role, opening or closing that gate for people. God, and we fall at your feet. We want to fall at your feet. Even if our pride is keeping us up, Lord, we want to fall at your feet and humbly give you all control. Control of our family members, our coworkers. Lord, you step in and take us back a little bit so we can see your message spread so we can get out of the way of it. Lord, we don't want to be the Pharisees, but I can see how we can become it. Spirit, keep convicting us, keep leading us, and Jesus, keep showing yourself again and again through this Mark series so we can learn to be more like you and become like you for this world, Lord. We love you and we praise you in your name. Amen.